this week's episode of The Wow, the podcast that will help you navigate your way through the world of adulthood and the uncontrollable forces of womanhood. I'm Georgina Beasley, your host, and in today's episode, we'll be chatting all things anxiety. I sat down to talk to Amy and Kat. Amy is a psychotherapist and Kat is a psychologist and they are the force behind the Psychology Sisters podcast, as well as the clinic, The Psych Collaborative. We deep dive into all things to do with anxiety, how we can best treat it, how we can cope with those thoughts, how we can control it, and how we can best understand what an anxiety disorder looks like. If you enjoy today's episode, please remember to subscribe, leave a review, share it with your friends, and if you haven't already, please come and join our community on Instagram at thewowpodcast underscore. And just a reminder, today's episode does cover issues of mental health topics such as anxiety, which may be triggering for some of you. Please just remember that you are never alone and that there's always help available at Beyond Blue, Headspace and Lifeline. Head to the show notes for those contact details if you feel like you need to speak to someone. Kat and Amy, welcome to the WOW podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are so welcome. We are flattered to be on your WOW podcast. Thank you for having us. Could you tell me a little bit about yourselves? Amy, would you like to go first? Ooh, okay. Uh, So my name's Amy. Um, Yeah, I'm 27. I'm a registered psychotherapist. Uh, Kat and I have our own podcast together. Crap, I didn't really know. I didn't prepare this question because I was like, I'll know what to say about myself. Um, uh, I'm, I really enjoy being outdoors and going on lots of hikes. Um, I enjoy spending time with my friends and my partner, Andy. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much me. <laughs> and Kat? Uh, yeah, so um, my name is Kat. Uh, I am 28 years old. I'm a registered psychologist. Um, I also enjoy the outdoors. I live with my fiance, Josh, um, and I currently work with NDIS. So I um, work with a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders. And in my spare time, I honestly just love to go to the beach and <laughs> drink coffee. <laughs> Oh, can so relate. So how long have you guys known each other for? Uh, we went to the same high school um, and that's mm-hmm. where we started to, obviously we knew each other, but we didn't become close until uni. So probably known each other for over 10 years now, um, probably been close for probably it's like five. six or seven. Oh, seven. Yeah. So quite a while. So what did you guys want to be when you were younger then, before you fell into your respected um, career paths as psychologists? What did you want to be when you were little? Take it away, Kat. (laughs) Okay, well, I actually did fall into psychology. Uh, It was never something that I was planning for, uh, really, until I got to university. Um, But I initially, I wanted to work in tourism. Um, what else did I want to do? I did want to go into business. I got accepted into business at Sydney, uh, uni, 
um, yeah, I just didn't really know, to be totally honest with you. And it wasn't until I was studying tourism that I took a psych unit and I just fell in love with it. So mine was never a perfect trajectory to get into psych. Um, it was more just, I just kind of stumbled across it and I really loved it. So that's how I ended up into it, just kind of fell into it. And yourself, Amy, what did you want to be when you were little? So I had a very different trajectory. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, and I think I knew from a young age, I just wanted to help people. I remember when I was in primary school going through a phase where I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then when I was in high school, that changed to psychology. And I think that predominantly stemmed from my relationship with my own mother. Um, it wasn't a good one. I had a I think a lot of difficulty understanding her behavior towards me and that made me really curious about psychology and why people are the way they are and yeah I just never swayed from that and continued yeah in, into uni studying psychology. So is it right that one of you is a psychiatrist or are you both psychologists? So I'm a psychologist and Amy's a psychotherapist. So they're a little bit different. So Amy, could you explain the difference with your degree and what you do in your profession to what Kat does as a psychologist? Yeah. So as Kat said, they're similar, but different. (laughs) Same, same, but different. Uh, So I did an undergrad in psychology and then did my master's in psychotherapy and counselling to become a registered psychotherapist. The difference in terms of, I guess, what that looks like in a clinical sense is psychotherapy is very uh, person-centred. We do a lot of uh, interpersonal work. Uh, It's very trauma-informed. So I work a lot with complex trauma. It's very long-term therapy as opposed to something like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, maybe, you know, 10 to 14 sessions. Um, Psychotherapy is traditionally uh, a a lot more long-term. So kind of like uh, psychoanalysis where um, you would see someone for a really long time to kind of delve into that unresolved conflict of complex Mm. trauma and relationships and things like that. So yeah, a little bit different, but psychotherapy is still great for, I guess, common mental health concerns like anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, eating disorders, stress, Um, those kinds of things as well it's just a slightly different framework Mm. and so Kat how did you guys fall into business together like what made you guys want to start up your practice Look, Amy and I are both very idealistic personality types. We're very optimistic and we generally have big goals. Um, So obviously we've known each other for quite a while and we have got very, very similar interests and passions. And, you know, it really, we always kind of said when we were living together and, you know, became quite close during university that we, you know, we should go into business one day. You know, we really want to have a really awesome holistic practice. We're really into the holistic side of mental health. And we really wanted a therapy dog. (laughs) That was like a really big driving force. Um, And yeah, I mean, we didn't really come up with a plan to do so, um, but we did start our podcast, which we started last year in May. And ever since then, it's worked out that there's been a few people who were really keen to see us. Um, So one thing kind of led to another and we thought, let's give it a crack. Let's, you know, if not now, then when are we ever going to be able to do this? So that's kind of how it all happened, but it was never like a 
10-year goal. We kind of just fell into it. We're very, (laughs) just gave it a whirl and that's how we got here today. No, good on you both. That's so fantastic. And I have to ask, therapy dog, is it around? Have you got one? (laughs) (laughs) Amy is actually getting a puppy and we want to train it up. We've got high hopes for her dog. (laughs) Yeah, the the breed is actually used um in therapy for for therapy um so yeah definitely possibility stay tuned (laughs) what breed is it and when are you getting it they're called a waimarama have you ever heard of a a waimarama they're like i have they're the big big beautiful gray silky like blue or green eyes um yeah i'm absolutely obsessed with them and i should have him or her by christmas so best christmas ever exciting oh that's cool so i'm assuming then we should all follow you on instagram so that we can get lots of puppy updates around christmas time definitely i I mean i haven't discussed this with kat yet but i think he should be the mascot for Mm. the psychology sisters absolutely i'm so on board (laughs) with that (laughs) i love that well i'm delving straight into the nitty-gritty of today's episode i'm really excited to chat to you guys about controlling anxiety because i feel like it is something that really affects a lot of women on a daily basis and although the stigma is slowly being broken down around mental health issues there are still barriers in terms of women getting the advice or getting the help that they may need Um, so I am really excited to chat to you guys about ways in which we can better cope with living with anxiety and better understand it so first off, what defines an anxiety disorder? Amy, do you have the answer for me? <laughs> well, I think firstly, it's really important, exactly like you say, there is a bit of a stigma around anxiety for men and for women, um, but anxiety is normal and adaptive. It helps us, you know, wake up on time. It can function to motivate us. You know, it helps us reach our deadlines. Um, we actually need a certain amount of stress and anxiety to learn and perform. But I guess um, when those anxious feelings are, I guess, chronic and they stop us from functioning normally and they stop us from you know enjoying the things we usually enjoy and kind of intrude on our daily functioning that is when we would start to look at it as more symptomology of a clinical diagnosis um Kat, did you have anything to add to that yeah I, I would definitely just say that if if there is excess I mean <laughs> A clinical diagnosis is, is characterised by excessive worry that is usually out of proportion with the threat. So as Amy's was saying, you know, some stress, some anxiety is normal. If if we saw a car racing towards us, we would hope that our stress response kicks in so we can move. So, And if we've got, you know, a presentation that we need to give, it is normal to expect some anxiety or a first date. But if it's more that it's out of proportion to the threat, so for example, if you have a first date and you just can't leave the house, you can't get the confidence up to leave the house, then I would say that would be out of proportion to the actual threat. So while it's absolutely normal and adaptive and and it is a survival mechanism, it starts to become a diagnosis when it really does impact on your everyday functioning. Hmm. And Kat, what causes anxiety? Like, is it a chemical imbalance or is it environmental factors or are we born with it? Is it genetic? Really good question. So I do just want to 
clarify the, the difference between stress and anxiety in short term versus a clinical diagnosis because they are quite different. As we were saying before, there is some normality with stress and anxiety for survival, you know, for those things that, um, for example, going on a roller coaster, um, any of those situations where you do have that normal level of stress and anxiety. Um, in terms of a clinical diagnosis of anxiety, you know, a few things can trigger the onset of a diagnosis. So we can certainly be genetically predisposed to anxiety. So for example, if our parents are anxious people or if they've been diagnosed, we're more likely to be anxious. Um, although I do need to clarify, just because your parents are anxious, that doesn't automatically mean you will be. It just means you're more vulnerable. Um neurologically as well if we experience an imbalance sorry it's going to get a bit sciencey and nerdy sorry <laughs> um no it's good if it's good to understand you know neurologically as well um so yeah if we experience an imbalance of neurotransmitters so those are things such as your dopamine um your stress hormones your serotonin um your cortisol then this can certainly increase our feelings of anxiety um so neurologically it's really important to look at that as well um but also yeah as you're saying environmental stresses so you know that can be anything that can be you know um unemployment financial hardship loss of a loved one a relationship breakdown um they can really leave us if we experience a big change and a big stress in our life that can certainly make us more vulnerable to um developing a clinical diagnosis of anxiety so amy are certain people predisposed to anxiety like i guess touching on what kat's saying there if your parents are anxious then you have a higher chance of maybe um, developing anxiety down the track but is there other cases where people can be predisposed to anxiety yeah definitely so uh, exactly like Kat was saying the environment plays a significant role in the development of anxiety because if our environment is not a safe secure and calm place that can trigger our stress response and also if we grow up with chronically anxious caregivers um, we absorb that way of dealing with situations so we learn to become anxious when thinking of what might be because that's how we learn to react to situations um, and there are temperament factors uh, so people that have a um, temperament that is timid or shy typically tend to avoid things that are dangerous um, which can induce anxiety or they may be more prone to generalized anxiety again it doesn't automatically mean that they will have anxiety um, also perfectionism is a characteristic that is typically associated with anxiety um, as well so th there are you know some temperament factors that are linked with having anxiety or increased levels of anxiety interesting and Kat do you have anything to add to that yeah, I mean, very similar. So certain personality types are more vulnerable to anxiety. So as Ames was saying, that perfectionist or often the, the, the typical type A personalities are more vulnerable. Also, um, birth order plays quite a huge role in mental health. So studies have shown really interestingly that the young or the middle-born child has a high risk of developing anxiety. Um, and that can be due to a whole range of factors, but generally perhaps it, it's to do with parenting um, for the second and the third child as opposed to the difference in parenting to the first child. So, um, mm. yeah, really interesting birth water can have a huge impact on, on anxiety and our predisposition. That is so fascinating. Um, in my family, I'm the oldest of um, two other sisters who are younger than me. And for some reason, I got all the anxiety problems and they were fine. <laughs> so obviously, we're the rarity for that statistic. Well, sometimes 
it can be the opposite. I mean, as you said, sometimes first, um, you would, I mean, intuitively you'd think that first, uh, firstborns would have the parents who are the most anxious because they've never had a child before. So anxious parents can often lead to anxious children, but, you know, studies have shown that it's more the middle and the, um, the youngest children. So, but it's not like just because you're the youngest or the middle doesn't mean you automatically have anxiety, <laughs> but it is interesting. Yeah, fascinating. And so what are the typical signs of someone who is looking like they have an anxiety disorder? Like how can we separate that from just having a higher level of stress in your day-to-day life and then verging on the area of actually developing a proper full-blown anxiety disorder? Obviously, what we've spoken about before, so things that are, for example, if you are experiencing any somatic symptoms, so um, increased heart rate, even though there's no threat there, uh, things, cognitive, emotional symptoms, inability to concentrate, irritability. Um, I would also say that really the easiest way to ascertain whether it's a anxiety diagnosis is to take away the threat. And if that person is still anxious, then I would probably say that, you know, that they perhaps are experiencing a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. But I find with my clients that high functioning anxiety is really difficult to pick up on. Um, People who have high functioning anxiety generally have adapted and are really good at wearing a mask and are really good at just, um, surviving so that can look like you know on the outside is people who are really organized or really friendly or really empathetic um the overachievers they're really intelligent um that can often be a sign as a clinician I mean it's it's hard to pick up on you know everyone else is thinking oh wow you know this person's got their life together but often as clinicians we'll delve into it and they're actually quite anxious um so things that might you know signs of an anxiety disorder if you're experiencing it might be if you are someone who catastrophizes you can never relax you are overthinking things, um, you have a lot of negative self-talk, um, you find it really, uh, you, 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 you're a bit of a people pleaser um, and you do have some repetitive behaviours and intrusive thoughts. So from the inside, that's probably um, the telltale signs of um, an anxiety disorder. And Amy, do you agree with Kat there? Yeah, definitely. And I would agree with the high functioning anxiety too. That is really difficult um, to navigate. And it's really difficult to, I guess, help find clients with high functioning disorders uh, or high, sorry, high functioning anxiety tools that they can use. Because like Kat said, it is very adaptive. I guess, um, as we were saying before, it's that irrational fear or avoidance of a person, place or thing that might not pose any threat to them. Uh, Impulsivity is another, I guess, sign of anxiety because uh, sometimes it can, anxiety can make us feel like uh, we don't have much time. So, and we can struggle to make decisions. Um, Like we said before, perfectionism, uh, or it could be the flip side of that procrastination. Uh, So we might find it really, really hard to actually get things done because things just seem all too overwhelming. It might look like compliance uh, at school or in the workforce. Um, We might have issues with our memory because we might be experiencing a lot of flooding. It might be just constant worry that interferes with our daily life or we might experience out of the blue panic attacks, uh, like Kat was saying, uh, racing uh, catastrophic thoughts and um, just yeah, basically living in constant fear and that hyper arousal. Are you guys finding that it's more and more common these days for young girls to be developing anxiety disorders with the rise of social media? 
Do you think there's a correlation there or you haven't quite noticed that? I think two things. I think certainly social media has such a big impact on mental health. I don't think it's been studied thoroughly enough to know the direct correlation, but I think there's certainly some correlation there. I also think that because anxiety is becoming a lot less stigmatized, perhaps people always had anxiety, they just never spoke about it. And so statistically, it was never recorded. So now more people are recognizing, oh, I have anxiety, it's being recorded. So that might not be an increase in, in um, because, you know, there is increasing anxiety, but is that perhaps due to a statistical error of people not reporting it um, out of shame or embarrassment? But certainly, I, I think as a clinician, absolutely, in my practice, I certainly see a lot of anxiety around social media and young girls, um, but I don't think there's been any conclusive studies um, because it hasn't, I mean, social media hasn't been around for long enough to have a lot of uh, really thorough studies, but I, I think in my practice, I can certainly see that. Ames, would you agree with that? Yeah. I completely agree with that. And so we're going to move on to some questions from our listeners today. They've sent in, yeah, a couple of different questions for you guys to answer. I have picked the top three. So the first one is they're going to remain anonymous today. But the first question uh, they would like to know, when should medicine be introduced into the treatment for an anxiety disorder? Like can you fix an anxiety disorder without, well, treat an anxiety disorder without having to look at introducing drugs and medication? So short answer, no, you don't need medication. However, it is strongly recommended if therapy isn't successful. Um, Anxiety, like I spoke about before, it is a neurological imbalance of chemicals in your brain. Um, So pharmaceutical interventions can really, really help. Um, I've seen lots of clients that have worked through anxiety without medication and that's been enough. Or I've seen clients who just rely on medication and that's enough. Um, But I see professionally that the best results often come with having those two together but everybody's different everybody has different severity levels some people might respond really well to medication some people might not so I I would always recommend we try therapy first it's the least intrusive way to support anxiety and if things are not improving then a psychiatric review with a psychiatrist or a GP just to kind of you know, explore some of those pathways. So, you know, I can't give you a solid answer because everyone's so different, but I'd certainly recommend it's not to kind of, I think medication's got a bit of stigma around it, um, you know, but it, it has been proven to really, really help. And a lot of people who do start medication, often with my clients that start, some of them are really like, wow, I wish I did this sooner. Um, so everyone's really different. And Amy, this question's for you. How can we deal with anxiety, panic attacks, anxious thoughts when we're in the workplace environment? What are your top tips for navigating that? Mm, I think that is such a good question that I think a lot of people who struggle with panic attacks would actually panic about because I think when you experience panic attacks, one of the things you fear the most is that you will have one in a public setting like work and you won't be able to control yourself and you'll be really embarrassed and humiliated uh, by the onset of the panic attack. And I, I guess it would be important uh, for a few things. I would recommend speaking to your supervisor, manager, employer about your mental health um, and just letting them know uh, and, you know, they might be able to provide support for you. I know some workplace um, workplaces have uh, access to EAP um, 
sorry, what's EAP? So that is a, uh, I guess, a funded psychological support that some organisations or um, employers offer. And, yeah, it just means that you and your family have access to psychological support included in your employment. Um, Other companies or organisations might have something similar where they can uh, help you with additional support if need be. I also think it's just important to bring awareness to, I guess, your boss or, you know, your supervisor, um, manager, whoever it may be, if it's something you're worried about because it eliminates some of that fear, uh, almost like that fear of, you know, you'll be caught out by your panic attack or um, it will happen and, you know, you won't know what to do. At at least just having that one person or two people that know, that are aware, that can help support you if need be. Also, I think you, it's really important to know that you can't control when a panic attack hits. So in fact, trying to control it can sometimes make it worse. Uh, the, like I said, the greatest fear is losing control of your panic and feeling trapped in that, you know, feeling like you're going to die because it is really horrible. Panic attacks are so horrible. And when anxiety hits, you know, it can make you feel like you have absolutely no control over your body. So I think the second thing would be learning tools so that when it happens, you are better able to cope. So things like deep breaths to calm down your nervous system. You know, when we practice these tools often, we get much better at regulating our anxiety, um, which means that panic attacks happen less frequently. So um, those kinds of things, progressive muscle relaxation is great. I think if you are um, having a panic attack at work, the best thing you can do is describe the symptoms you're feeling to yourself, acknowledge them, remind yourself that this is simply a your nervous system's response and it will pass. You know, the first thing people try and do when they're having a panic attack is try and fight it and, you know, again, feel that real embarrassment and shame, um, especially if it's not their first panic attack and they're aware of what's happening be with your symptoms and you know I guess the best way of gaining control over your panic attacks is not getting rid of it straight away and accepting that it will pass really practical things like making sure that you're not having too much caffeine Um, consuming too much caffeine exacerbates anxiety and panic attacks Uh, doing things like exercising Um, you know knowing things like we produce more cortisol in the morning. So if we go for a short walk or, you know, um, it just has to be 20 minute walk in the morning. Um, it, you know, kind of floods our body with endorphins and it alters those neural circuits that control our mood and, um, you know, boosts like Kat was saying, our neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, allowing us to alleviate those anxious symptoms. I think things like that would be really important. Kat, the last one is for you. This listener would like to know, they feel as though they're going to experience higher levels of social anxiety when coming out of the COVID-19 lockdown. What are some ways in which they can navigate this space and feel less anxiety around social situations and entering back out into the big wide world? (laughs) That's such a good question. And I do just want to acknowledge that this is such a normal fear that so many people are having for people who are uh, generally quite anxious already or have experienced social anxiety previously. COVID, I think, has triggered a lot of that 
anxiety. Um, so knowing firstly that you're not alone, that what you're experiencing is a completely normal reaction. It's it's kind of even people who who aren't predisposed to anxiety or have not had social anxiety before. Um, I, I'm certainly noting with my professional and personal life that a lot of people are feeling that anxiety with going back to normal life because humans we're good at adapting and even though it was hard we've adapted quite well to isolate well most of us have adapted quite well to isolation um you know we've we've learnt that we can be with ourselves we've had time I think that's the most important thing we've, we've really enjoyed we've had hobbies that we could do we've not had to go to social events you know we've had you know so much less some people have had less anxiety um, in isolation so to go back out and it's almost like it's not just you're going out to see friends it's like going back to reality almost um, it's really anxiety provoking so do you just want to normalize that for that um, for the person that wrote the question but I think with social anxiety, it is a lot of rational thinking. Social anxiety, we generally tend to catastrophize. We tend to think people are going to judge me and, you know, this, I just, I can't deal with that. But I think just going back and looking at the evidence, that's the most important thing. Um, one of the most important things, sorry, with social anxiety. So when you've gone out before, what happened? What, you know, was did a catastrophe happen or was it okay? You know, when you went to Coles, what happened? Were you okay? Like, talk me through that. So and, and using that as, you know, the future. So if you went out again, yes, you might feel a bit anxious, but do you think anything really bad would happen? Like what would be the worst thing that could happen? And can we deal with that? Let's let's come up with a plan that if that happens, we can deal with it. And then everything less than that is a bonus. So a lot of, you know, social anxiety, it's, it's that really catastrophizing. Um, it's a lot of that negative self-talk. And I often find there's a bit of correlation with low self-confidence and social anxiety. So just um, having a really good support system around you, reminding that you've gone out previously, you've you know met with friends previously, and even though it might've been a little scary and difficult, you were still able to go. And what helped you to go? You know, what strengths did you have? What strengths did you use to go? So I would certainly... Um, yeah, recommend that. But also if it's something that this person can't get through, I certainly do recommend therapy, but it is unfortunately a really normal um, fear that I, I've noticed a lot of my clients are feeling as well. Mm. It sounds like I know my psychologist has always spoken about this and I feel like this is something that you're really talking about, but there's only a certain number of things that you can control. And then there's a lot of it that you can't. So focusing on the things that you can control in that point in time and just not wasting your energy on the ones you can't because at the end of the day, you have no power over what will happen in that space. Yeah. And, and taking back that, you know, knowing, acknowledging what you can control does bring back a bit of that power for yourself, doesn't it? Mm. Because I think we mm. often forget, we kind of think that everything's out of our, um, within our control. So when we say, no, this isn't in your control, sorry, this isn't in your control, it can be a little bit confronting, but also a relief. It's like, okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, control plays a big part. Amy kind of touched on this before, so I'll ask um, you, Kat, if you have anything to add, but I'm curious to know what other tips you have for controlling anxiety. When we spoke about the listener's question about anxiety in the workplace, um, Amy spoke about, you know, going for walks, deep breathing, um, making sure you've got a routine in place, speaking to someone about it so that they're aware, really sitting in that zone when you're having a panic attack and not fighting that response that the body is having. Would you suggest any other ways in which we can control our anxiety when we're in that kind of state of mind I think I'd, like before going into those strategies um, which are super important I think 
most important thing to remember, well, I, I think, sorry, one of the things I think is the most important thing to remember with anxiety is that anxiety is not bad. Anxiety doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. In fact, it's probably the opposite. People who are more anxious means that their brain is working a lot harder um, to keep them safe. And sometimes I tell my clients that anxiety is a bit like a superpower. If, you know, the world ended and there were zombies and <laughs> all of these things, people who are the most anxious would probably survive. Um, so looking at anxiety as rather a good thing and something to care for. I know Ames, you spoke about that on an Instagram post, rather than something to fear, um, really helps us to get that control back over our anxiety and not see it as something that's wrong with us or something that's a deficit, but rather something that can help us. Um, so certain strategies, absolutely all of those, which Ames said, I would also really recommend um, triggers. So understanding your triggers um, and how that influences our somatic responses. So I, I, I always say to clients, early warning signs are so important. Um, so, you know, we might be triggered by hearing a loud noise and instantly for a lot of people, your heart rate increases, we get a bit sweaty because our brain is perceiving that loud noise as a threat. So before it even gets to the level of ongoing anxiety, we can um, use those relaxation strategies. And that's why deep breathing, mindfulness, PMR are so helpful in those early warning time, like in the you know initial stages of anxiety, because it's helping, it's signaling to your brain that you're safe. That's why we do it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think certainly rational thinking, evidence-based, you know, looking at, you know, is this threat, is this going to hurt you? What What's the actual, you know, threat of this you know oh you've got an assignment due is this going to end your life is this a threat to your safety our brain can't actually differentiate between a psychological a psychological threat and a physical threat so um it it will react the same way to a car coming down the road and a presentation at work it, it can't <laughs> our brain's really intelligent but a lot but sometimes it's very primitive um so that's why you know we need to remind our brain we're safe you know affirmations can help i'm okay i'm in control i've got this you know, sometimes I get clients to say, thank you for keeping me safe, but I've got this from here. Um, and, you know, I, I think that really helps clients to really understand and ask, you know, I get anxious too, that anxiety is okay. It's nothing to be scared of. So I think that thinking as well can really help. On what Kat was saying there, Amy, about um, feeling empowered from your anxiety and not feeling ashamed of it do you believe that with the right tools and techniques if we harness our anxiety we can almost outperform and use it to our ability to succeed further yeah I do I and I do and on Kat was saying I more look at anxiety as something to care for so um, I guess my work a lot of my work with anxiety is through the lens of trauma and they're quite similar the difference between anxiety and trauma is that anxiety invades our present from fear of the future and trauma invades our present from our past each makes us feel like danger is imminent and activates our survival system the fight flight freeze and both trauma and anxiety induce the hyper arousal and wreak havoc on our nervous system so um yeah I I do agree that those that are anxious um it is like Kat was saying a superpower and it is something to care for Kat how do you recommend best treating an anxiety disorder if you say that you're a listener and I'm listening to this right now and some of the things you guys have both spoken about are alerting me to the fact that I may or may not have an anxiety disorder and maybe I should do something about it how would you 
best recommend going around treating that? I think, you know, you don't have to have it diagnosed. You don't, I don't want people listening to this thinking, well, I'm anxious, but I, I don't think it's bad enough because early intervention is, is a lot better than late intervention. Um, so even if your listeners do feel a little bit anxious and it's impacting on a you know, a few parts of the life, but it's manageable, I'd still definitely recommend reaching out for help. Um, high functioning anxiety, for example, uh, you know, perhaps people with high functioning anxiety and do function quite high might not realise that they have anxiety. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend to speak to a therapist, whether that be a psychologist, a counsellor, psychotherapist, um, psychiatrists can help as well but I think you know that's your best uh first line of defense is talking to someone about it um lots of people feel a bit nervous to reach out for help completely daunting and it can be really scary um so you can uh, you know some clients who are a little bit nervous to take that leap they might look it up a little bit more go on beyond blue um on the black dog you know just researching anxiety can be really helpful. Listening to podcasts, um, YouTube videos just can help people to feel more knowledgeable about their anxiety. But if it's still not improving, if they just feel so a bit lost and not in control of their anxiety, then certainly reaching out for help. Um, as we talked about medication, can be extremely helpful, but I'd always recommend, I think GPs tend to over-prescribe anxiety medication, um, usually SSRIs, but they don't often always recommend a therapist, whereas I would go the opposite. I'd talk to a therapist first, and then if that's not improving, I'd go down the um, medication route, but that's obviously everyone's different. Um, and I would also look at things, really simple things that often gets overlooked with anxiety, sleep, diet, exercise, stresses, um, you know, that person could be just experiencing a really big stress in their life and needs to cut down on something. So um, that's in a nutshell <laughs> how I'd really quickly treat. And Amy, how do you, if someone wants to find a therapist of sorts to help them on their journey, how, where to begin? Like, where do you start with finding someone that can help you on your journey? Do you just type it in? Because I feel like sometimes that first initial step can look a little bit more like a leap rather than a step because how it's you know, quite anxiety provoking isn't it <laughs> yeah it is though because you're putting your whole trust into this person that you don't know and how can you make sure they're the right one and where to begin in terms of finding one do you have any recommendations for that yeah I do I think I think your best port of contact will always be your local or family GP because they know the area, they can give you some information, uh, they might have their own referrals that they might recommend to you. Uh, I guess if you are a student and there is a, um, a school counsellor or a university counsellor, they might be someone you can go to for information in your local area or who might be best um, to get in contact for you uh, otherwise yeah you can do a search but I, I find that that is really overwhelming for someone that might be experiencing really painful anxiety you know that already feels like a loss of agency and it can be really debilitating so it it might be best to have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone that can at least get you started in that first step um, and get you connected and engaged mm. with someone and then what I would recommend is sometimes you don't find the best fit with a psychologist or a therapist straight away and that's okay. Um, it might look like 
trialing a couple of different psychologists and, and seeing how you go with them because everyone's experience of anxiety is so different and everyone's treatment of anxiety will be individualized. So um, I, I guess that's part of the process and, and that can take a little bit as well. But uh, we, we would always say, always say go to your GP first and have a conversation with them. They might be able to refer you to someone um, or if going actually physically going to a GP feels too daunting, you might contact um, an online or t- um, telehealth service like Beyond Blue, Headspace, Lifeline. They can also put you in contact with services and clinicians around your area um, if that's something you feel comfortable with as well. And then that way, you know, you don't have to go and give your whole life story, your whole spiel to a stranger um, and go through that process. Uh, that's also an option as well. That um, can be quite helpful. I think we often forget that finding the right therapist is kind of like dating. Like it takes, we've got to remember that it takes time to find the right person and it's all about the long-term gain you're going to get out of it rather than the short-term one session that you have with it because unfortunately it's not something that you can usually fix in just one session. So it's all about, yeah, trying to find someone that's going to be with you through the long haul of it. Definitely. And I think that's another reason why therapy is so great because it creates a safe relationship for people who may have never experienced a safe relationship before. Um, You know, they form new experiences, especially with goodbyes. Like I have so many clients who have never experienced good separation. Um, So they are able to mend that association and work towards secure attachment, which feels safe, which is directly linked to anxiety. So when you do find that good fit, I use the analogy of jeans. It's like finding the perfect pair of jeans that just hug you in all the right places and make you feel really good about yourself. And um, yeah, that's like, you know, a good therapist. It will, they will just hold you and contain you and it will feel really safe and comfortable and secure. Mm, I absolutely. And hopefully last that. a really long time. <laughs> yeah. And Kat, could you recommend three reasons why it's incredibly important that we control our anxiety? Oh, um, only three. Okay. I had to really narrow these down. <laughs> um, okay. So definitely I, I found with clients that have been able to control their anxiety and look at it more as an empowerment, as you're saying, rather than um, a detriment to their personality, definitely improves overall quality of life. Um, it certainly improves self-confidence. And the third thing, which I think is the most exciting part of when I see clients who are working through their anxiety is they say yes to more opportunities. They see things not as big, scary threats anymore, or even if they do, they feel more confident to go forward. And, you know, I've seen clients get amazing job opportunities, you know, travel overseas, do things that they never would have when they've started to understand their anxiety and control it. So definitely those three things would be my biggest, yeah, things. Like Kat, I think it's incredibly difficult to narrow it down to three, but I think um, prolonged anxiety, I guess, on a very, I guess, health perspective causes chemical and physical changes within us, which put us at risk of a wide array of diseases and, and health concerns. But I think... Um, 
from more of my lens as a clinician from an early age you know we practice responding to anxiety um, as a result of our experiences we adopt responses that work best for us at the time and this becomes kind of like our default coping mechanism and these are related to our connection with our parents uh, who soothed us. And if you were never noticed, that might look like you'll be incredibly self-sufficient and withdrawn. And if you were overprotected, you might feel incapable of being able to soothe yourself and doubt your capacity to cope altogether. So, uh, you know, separation distress is an unconscious process and it can cause long-term chronic anxiety. So I think managing anxiety is really important for our relationships. When we are anxious, we can go into separation distress and become either clingy and and seek, um, you know, other people to comfort us or we can become withdrawn and detached and our reactions may be triggered, uh, you know, for example, someone might be a little bit funny with us and, and that might look like, oh, no, what have I done wrong? Do they not like me anymore? Um so I, I just think that's another reason why learning and understanding, I think, is the most important thing. Um, like Kat and I have said, we're, we're always going to have anxiety and that's not a bad thing, but understanding where your anxiety comes from for you, um, you know, what is the cause of your anxiety and learning different tools that help you manage your anxiety is so important and crucial, especially for our relationships and, and how we relate and connect to others. I'm wondering if the two of you can also recommend a motto or quote that you guys live by when it comes to dealing with anxiety. Kat, would you like to go first? Mm. This is really hard. A motto is like less than 10 words. (laughs) How do I sum up my whole professional expertise in less than 10 words? Okay, this, okay, it's going to be a little bit different to anxiety. I'm just thinking of this on the spot, but it's going to be in relation to mental health as a whole. Um, Mm If you had gone through what they'd gone through, if you'd had the same family, the same genetics, you would be behaving in exactly the same way that they would. Mm. That's my motto. So I think that that really helps people. I mean, as clinicians, when we get a referral and we see the symptoms and the presentation, we think, oh, my gosh. Then when we understand where they've come from and what they've done, we're like, this makes so much sense. You know, people are not meaning to, I don't know, for example, I see lots of uh, clients with anger management. They're not meaning to get angry, but considering the trauma that they might have gone through um, or the childhood that they've had, it makes complete sense. That's them trying to adapt to their environment and take control. So that's my motto um, as a clinician um, and that what, that I live by. It's not completely to do with anxiety, but it really helps me um, to understand people as a whole. No, I think that's actually a really good one because you can also look at it as someone dealing with a mental health um, Mm. disorder in the sense that, you know, you can't always compare yourself to others. Everyone's experience is going to be different. And, yeah, just because you're struggling with anxiety doesn't mean the other person next to you isn't facing any hardships. They just Mm. might look completely different because you've had completely different journeys. So I really like that one. Amy, what about yourself? So mine comes from, and I learned it, or I remember it from uni. So I'm not gonna, yeah, give this the, I guess, um, what it deserves. But it comes from an old Greek saying. I know that much, but I can't remember what the actual Greek terminology is. But basically, um, and it does directly relate to anxiety. But I guess you could use it for um, most things in life. I, I guess, like. It, 
Um, but basically it's saying that when something happens, the only power you have is your attitude towards it. So you can accept it or you can resent it basically. So we are um, disturbed not by things but the view we take of them. So kind of like anxiety increases when we avoid what we think the source of the difficult thing is, right? So uh, or I call them anxious objects with clients. So it might be um, things that you control like food, money, clothing, cleaning, information, consumption, and um, I guess that's often perceived as the source of the danger or the anxiety. For example, you know, often people come to therapy, especially when I work with couples, it will be, well, if only they did something differently, I would be okay. So often the presenting problem will be that, you know, my clients want things outside themselves to change. And I guess it's about um, them finding an internal sense, um, you know, by shifting their perspective or, or changing their view of something. And yeah, I really like that quote for anxiety because I think it works really well that your your power is your attitude towards what you are being presented with. Yeah, they're both like bang on mottos and quotes from the two of you. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, Kat, could you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Sure. Um, so Amy and I started it kind of like I said before in uh, May last year. So it's a year and a little bit old, our little baby. Um, it was really just a um, – I, I was listening to podcasts a lot on the way to work and none of them are really – I mean, obviously I love mental health and anything psych. So I was looking for that podcast that was really engaging and informative and I couldn't really find one that kind of had a good dose of you know not entertainment but was easy to listen to and easy to understand but was also evidence-based and informative you know I it was either one or the other um so yeah um Amy I just sent a message to Ames and I was like you know like let's we have some really engaging conversations um Amy and I and I thought let's do it you know like nobody will listen <laughs> it's just for our own like little passion project um and then yeah and then we got all the gear and we gave it a crack and yeah we what, 13, 14, 15 months down the track, we're still going. <laughs> people are listening. We haven't annoyed people. So, yeah, we we love it. We call it just our little our little baby <laughs> because it's taken so much time. Um, it's our little passion project, <laughs> so much time and energy and nurturing. Um, but, yeah, no, we, we love it. It's just given us so much, so many opportunities that we would never have had the chance to do. So, yeah, that's a little bit about our podcast. So for those listeners who do want to jump on board and give that a listen, it's called the Psychology Sisters. Um, spiritual sisters, though, not <laughs> <laughs> that we learned earlier on. No, and that is available on all good podcasting platforms. And lastly, Amy, could you tell me about your practice that you guys run? Is that available online to people to book consultations with you guys? Yes, it is. So Kat and I run an online psychology clinic and our philosophy has been about providing affordable, good quality psychological support to everyone, everywhere, well, basically in Australia, um, not overseas yet, sorry. Uh, yeah, so uh, Kat and I had a lot of questions around, you know, where people could go to for support and I guess from people our kind of age, you know, in their 20s, uh, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older who may not have been able to access psychological 
support in the traditional ways. Uh, so yeah, we thought let's do it. Let's um, start up our own online clinic so we can provide, uh, I guess, support that we might have wished we had before becoming clinicians because we just feel so strongly and passionately about um yeah people accessing support when they need it you know reaching out and a lot of time what gets in the way of that is either uh kind of like we mentioned people being so daunted by the whole process of being referred to a psychologist or a mental health um clinician and we kind of wanted to just make it as easily accessible and affordable as possible because, yeah, that's what we're, we're passionate about. So, Firstly, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. Do you need a referral to come see you guys? Nope. No. 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 And can you um, – Is a, do you get rebates through Medicare from seeing you guys? We are absolutely working on that. Literally, I just did some work before we got on today <laughs> to apply for <laughs> – Medicare and I know that Ames is applying for some rebates so it's definitely in the works um it's just it takes a little bit more time than we had originally thought so not at the moment but certainly it's it's on its way no that's exciting good news and um where can people go to find it what's the website so our practice is called the Site Collaborative. Um, so we also have an Instagram at the Site Collaborative. So it's just the sitecollaborative.com.au and the Instagram at the Site Collaborative. Um, and if you follow us on the Psychology Sisters Insta, we have all the links there as well. So amazing. I'll be putting them all in the show notes as well so Yay. that everyone can come and find you guys. But Yay. thank you so much for coming on and having a chat to me. This was really interesting and I really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat to us all today. Um, so thank you. Aww. You are so welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> us and thanks for the work that you're doing for women. We love that. Killing it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Wow Anxiety is not a lighthearted topic. It's something that is incredibly serious and something that affects so many of us women. I hope you found my conversation with Amy and Kat interesting and were able to take something away from it. If you are dealing with anxiety, I want you to know that you are not alone, that you can always seek help and there is always people that are willing to support you on your journey. My journey with anxiety hasn't been easy and slowly and steadily I'm learning how to control it and not let it control me so I know there is definitely light at the end of the tunnel if this is something that you are struggling with I do want you to know that there are so many different platforms out there to help you such as Headspace such as Beyond Blue and such as Lifeline and I've linked the contact details to these places in the show notes Lastly, just a friendly reminder that the information shared on this podcast is general advice only and does not take into account your personal situation or needs. Where appropriate, please consult a health practitioner first. Thanks, guys, and have a lovely week. <laughs>